Recorded live. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. This is Charlene Anderson, and I'm here with the Wholesale Sourcing Experts podcast. And today we're going to have a little question and answer session. We had bunches of people in the Facebook group submit questions that they have about Amazon, about business, about all sorts of stuff, and I'm going to do my best to answer them here. with feedback from everybody in the chat room because then we can get a dialogue going. Um, And if those of you who are on a phone or or have speakers on a computer, if you decide you want to get on and talk, I can unmute you and we can talk too. So So let me pull up the question list and get started. So the first one that got entered in the uh, Facebook group was from Angie. And Angie asked, how to find good accounts without going to trade shows. It's entirely possible, Angie. Um, Though you know I love going to trade shows. I love the interaction with the people, seeing the products in person. If for whatever reason you can't go, there's lots of ways to find the good products. And the first one is just getting a hold of vendor lists from trade shows in your niche. So say you are into selling homeschooling kids stuff. Somewhere in the world, I bet there is a trade show for homeschooling suppliers, people who supply things to parents who homeschool their kids. So you find this trade show, and it may be in Timbuktu, and you don't want to go all the way to Mali in Africa to visit it. So you decide you will sign up for it anyway, because 99% of the trade shows tend to be free, and then you will have access to the list of all the vendors who are attending that trade show. And the list will include the contact name, it will include the phone numbers, and it will include emails and website, because those vendors go to the trade shows because they want to sell stuff. And they don't want to sell stuff only to the people who showed up at the show. They're looking for retailers to buy their things everywhere. So that's my first hint about finding products without going to trade shows. So it's it's kind of a um, um, uh, easy way to do it. Um, Angie, that could be one, sure, a curriculum show where they sell to the public because if, they are, if they're the, the manufacturer of the product, say they're the people who write the book and the curriculum for that, that age group or whatever, if they're the ones who are producing the content, then sure, you know, look for those and get the list of names of the people who are going to those consumer shows. That's what they're called as a consumer show. Um, because that doesn't mean that they won't also wholesale those products to you, even though they're selling them retail to the end consumer. You're the person who wants to step into the middle and, um, and find those. Um, I would just do some Google search. Um, you could go to a website called Trade Show News Network. I'm putting it in the chat room now. TNNA.com. And it is a website that it's a conglomeration of a gazillion different lists of trade shows. And it will, it will, you can search by topic or you can search by niche or you can search by specific vendors to find out where somebody you may want to get in contact with what show they're going to be at. The Trade Show News Network is a really good place to start looking for trade shows in your niche, um, whether it be homeschooling or 
baby products or pet products, um, whatever. I'm sure there's there's going to be shows because homeschooling is is a big uh, dollar uh, industry now. So so they're going to be there. So um, this would be some Google time on your laptop or your your pad or your phone just to see what you can come up with, and then then just gain access to those lists and start contacting people. Then it becomes just the same as if you had found them through being at the trade show yourself. Um, except you didn't have to go. So I think, I think somewhere along the line, everybody needs to go to at least one trade show. Even if you don't go to buy anything, I think it's a really educational experience. You don't have to talk to anybody. If, they, if one comes to your hometown, Angie, um, I would really suggest you sign up just to go to one, just to see what it's like. Um, it'll give you a lot of insight into how vendors work what they expect from you as a retailer um, and what you expect from them because it has to be a two-way street in business that you have to, to get stuff from them and they have to get stuff from you. Basically, you want their products and their support for those products and they want your money. So um, there's two schools, schools of thought in business. One is every deal has to be a win-win, which is kind of the Pollyanna kind of attitude. Every deal has to be a win-win. Or... The other one that is becoming more popular is that both people have to walk away from the deal equally unhappy, which I think is, I, it makes me feel kind of negative, but they're saying, yeah, if each person had to give stuff that they didn't want to, to do the deal, it'll be fine. So you can take whichever way you want to look at that one, but um, but I, I say get, get on Google and do your research, and since you know that niche really, really well, it will be easier for you to identify things that parents want. Um, you know, what do you need to actually run an effective classroom at home versus stuff that is just, it looks good, but will end up in the desk drawer and never get used. Um, kind of like all those kitchen gadgets, those, those unitasking tasking kitchen gadgets that do only one thing and you buy them and they seem really, really cool when you buy it and you use them once and you put them in the drawer because it's more hassle to get them out to snip the top off your soft boiled eggs and to actually crack the top with a knife, you know, that kind of, those kind of things. Um, yeah, Angie, yeah, cool sells. Um, the secret is to find the stuff that will sell even if it ends up in the desk store. You know, I mean, that, that is the, the, the hard part of all of this because we all have a drawer in our kitchen probably full of all those, those things that just seemed really amazing and don't get used. And I find I pull out the same, like, five things every time I'm in the kitchen. You know, it's it's the same in my office. It's the same pin every time. I don't need 25 different kinds of pins. I like the same pin every time, you know. One pair of scissors. I have to have that same pair of scissors to do everything because that's just the way it is. So so does that help you in finding trade show people, Angie? Um, let me know in the chat room. Um, but then there are other ways. Um, okay, good. Um, so then there are ways that I like to find cool products and good products without going to trade shows. And that's my industrial espionage technique. That's what I like to call it because when it worked the first time, I thought it was like the coolest thing ever. So I signed up for, and I still actively look for mailing lists from retail stores in my niche, both online-only stores and brick-and-mortar stores. So for me, I sign up for like the 10 um, 
biggest jewelry supply companies who sell to the public. These are retailers. I'm not signing up for wholesaler stuff now. I'm just saying for retailers. So there's probably, um, in the homeschooling field, there's probably three or four big names, I would guess, Angie, who sell like tons of stuff to homeschooling parents. So um, in my case, it was knitting shops and jewelry making shops were the two that I really focused on, brick and mortar and um, online only. And I didn't care where the brick and mortar stores were. I just looked for stores that had a really broad uh, range of products. And you can tell that from their website. Even if they don't sell on their website, you can tell if they have a good range of products in their store or not without ever visiting the store. So I signed up for well, dozens of those in each, each field. And some come, some do them like three times a week. There's a couple that do daily stuff. And there's a couple that do like once a month or only when they get something new and cool in stock. And I use those to look for the new and cool stuff they just got in stock. Because um, even though I go to a lot of trade shows and I really like try to keep my ear to the ground on everything, I've found some products I've never heard of before through emails from other retailers. And then, you know, you have the name of the product then and um, you can Google and find the manufacturer quite easily. It usually takes, you know, one search and you're onto it because you have the exact name of the product. Usually there's an image of the product in these emails that you'll get from retail stores. And so you can see if you've hit the right one with the uh, image of it and everything. And then I've contacted them and saying, I've heard great things about your XYZ widget. I'd love to carry them in my online store. How do I open up a wholesale account? And that literally is all I say. I don't go to any detail about my store, whether it's an Amazon store, whether I sell on eBay. I, I wait to see what they ask. I do say my online store so they know I'm not a brick and mortar, but my online store. Um, and you'll get varying responses. You'll get some that we don't sell to online retailers which may or may not be true. You'll get some that, that say, I just opened up an account for you. Here's your login. Go log in and order. You know, and they'll, that's it. They won't ask for anything. You'll have others that will ask for your, your state sales tax number and your business name, you know, the, the minor basic details. Um, and then you'll get some who want to know where you sell online and everything. And that's when you, you upfront and honest say, I have an Amazon store that focuses on, for me, arts, crafts, and creativity things. Um, you could say I have an online, an Amazon store where we sell general merchandise that we find cool, interesting, and appealing. Something like that. That's all you need to say. You don't need a ton of details. I do include the link to my Amazon store, that one that says, you know, Amazon.com forward slash shops, whatever it is that your name. Um, when they ask, where is your online store? Um, I include that. And, you know, then it's just a wait and see if they want to open an account with you or not. Um, I had one happen that I had been buying books and DVDs from a distributor. And they're a huge distributor. I order from them like twice a week because they carry just so much stuff. And then I decided, well, this was kind of dumb. Why don't I just bypass the distributor and go right to the publisher of the DVDs? And I did. And they didn't want anything but my sales tax information and a credit card to charge the account. And that was it. And account was open, saving about 8% 
on each uh, book or DVD. So that shows you what the distributor is making. Not a whole lot on, on the thing. And the benefit also for, from this, this, this uh, DVD publisher, and it, it's quite common in the DVD field, is there's no shipping charge um, for any size order. Um, the two DVD companies I order from, there's no shipping charge for any size order. And your discount is based on how far away you are from them. So in one instance, I get 45% off list price, you know, the price that's on the DVD, um, because they're on the East Coast. Another one who is a little closer, they're in the Midwest, I get 55% off because it's closer. So that's another convention that's used in, in the DVD field. And I sell the DVDs for far above list because they're going FDA, and in the vast majority of cases, I'm the only FDA seller. So the margin's good, and DVDs are easy. You know, they're easy to, to get in, to put the label on, and send back out the door. So, so do that industrial espionage too, Angie, um, um, uh, with some other retailers in your niche and see if you can find products that way. So that's two big ways. So um, Wendy, the brouhaha about selling DVDs is you have to be approved by Amazon to sell DVDs that retail for over list price over $25. And a lot of people were doing lots of ways to try to get around the approval, like buying from these DVD liquidators who um, were questionable at best. Um, the, whole, the whole reason was try, trying to um, combat DVD piracy and making sure that the people selling DVDs had authentic DVDs and all that. So if you're buying DVDs from the publisher, meaning the people who make them, um, it's very easy to get approved because you have the invoice from the publisher of the DVDs sending that into Amazon during the approval process made it pretty, it was easy. I just sent it in and I was approved, you know, within minutes because it was obvious that I was buying from the people who made the DVDs. I'm trying to get approved by, by um, going through liquidators or going to Walmart and buying stuff um, is, is a much harder uh, road to hoe because even the big boys have been burned with counterfeits. I mean, we know all the frozen stuff and all of that. So, so Amazon is looking for you to go to the source. So that's the brouhaha. It's a, it, if you're buying from a reputable source, it's an easy category to get approved in. So, so um, as far as researching what's going south, I buy every DVD that my two publishers make um, because they're craft DVDs and they will sell. And I buy three at a time to start. Okay, when a new title comes out, I get three of most. There's some that I know based on the person who made it that they have a really good reputation in the field and their other DVDs have sold really fast. I'll do six or nine or 12. But, um, but then, um, then I just put them up and, you know, reorder when they sell. DVDs take very little storage space. Inbound shipping is easy. So I'm not concerned if I have three and they don't sell the minute I get there. Um, right now, DVDs are probably one of my biggest categories in sales. Um, because I have a lot of them. I have everything that these two publishers do. And people want FDA. The publisher actually sells on Amazon. The people who make these craft DVDs, they sell on Amazon, but they only sell merchants of sales, and they add $3.99 shipping to the list price of the video. So I can add another buck or two on top of that 
as FDA and do farm. So that's what I mean by selling way above list. So if it's a $24.99 video, they add $3.99, you know, I can then move ahead and since I'm FBA, do $39.99 on it and make an extra dollar to it. So, so that's the scoop on the DVDs. So Angie, that'll give you some stuff to go on and to keep you busy for a day or two at least on looking for stuff not from trade show. So um, the next question is from Beth. Um, Beth, where are you? Are you home now? Or are you still on the road? Last I heard, you were had a flight canceled out of somewhere and were stuck. And like, oh boy. Oh, she's home! Yay! That's a nice feeling. Your own bed and all of that kind of stuff. Um, congratulations, and I hope the weather's good too. So, yeah, shocker. Yeah, after you know, hundred thousand miles a year, it's uh, home looks really good. No matter how much I travel, I do like to get home, and then, then you know, you can kind of decompress. I, I'm in awe of Beth about what she can do on the road, but I think it's from years and years of experience. I don't focus real well, like, doing business work while I'm, like, on a plane or something, so she gets uh, she gets gold stars. Nobody's bed is as good as your own. Amen, because I have a really nice, really like my bed. But one thing I did is I decided after having been in Salt Lake City that last trip and staying in a very nice hotel, I decided enough with colored and printed sheets in my life. I'm going to be a hotel in my bedroom, and I ordered nice, crisp white sheets and white pillowcases and everything. And then I have a blanket that goes over everything because the dog likes to sleep on the bed. But the part that I'm in and that Ron's in is now going to be like those crisp white hotels-looking stuff like, you know, you see in all the nice hotels. So so they're due to arrive from Amazon today. So anyway, best question. She says, what to look for and alternately run from in a supplier? And I think the second part is like the telling part because it is. It's hard. Um, what I look for, I look for, if, and I'll say, one, this applies to both trade shows in person, and it applies to email communications, too. Um, because people's um, tone can come through, you know, in an email or a, a chat post or whatever, really, really easily. So the first thing I've decided is life is too short to deal with really, really difficult suppliers. And by difficult, I mean people who are just like grouchy all the time. You know, everything seems to be a hassle and a problem, and their emails are snippy and all that, there's a point where you can put up with that for a long time, but unless the product's really good, I don't want to deal with nasty people on the end. And I don't mean a little, everybody has a bad day, but a consistent company-wide feeling of a bad attitude. Because that comes from the top down. If everybody's disgruntled and grumpy and hard to deal with and everything is a let me check kind of thing and all that, it's like that to me, speaks that there are other issues in the company and I may not want to spend my time on it. Um, other things I look for is how does my stuff arrive from them? Is it nicely packed, carefully packed? Do I always have to deal with damage? Um, is it hard to get damaged things resent, credited, whatever? I mean, we all know UPS is horrible on boxes, <laughs> but but there are um, ways to pack to minimize that. Nobody's um, nobody's uh, shipments should consistently arrive damaged. If they do, they need 
that that means that there is a problem in their their packing and shipping department that needs to be addressed. I have one that um, it's that big big distributor who carries tens of thousands of products. I have to put up with that pain in the butt because they carry lots of stuff that sells really well. So um, so that's one that I would look at. If the stuff was not selling well, um, then I would be I would think twice about having to deal with the returns and the credits. Because like right now I got a box of a jewelry baking tool from that sells for two hundred and fifty dollars. And it's a big heavy metal thing. It's probably five inches by seven inches, but weighs like eight pounds. And they're made overseas. Um, they're usually made in India. And the boxes that they are packed in are not the greatest boxes in the world. They've probably been recycled. The paper to make them has probably been recycled eight times. You know, they just have a very soft feel to them and everything. And this thing arrived, and the entire box was held together with not one but two layers of packing tape. So they, like, it was just they made everything out of packing tape to hold this box together. And you can't sell a product that expensive like that. You know, I thought, this is ridiculous. I understand the thing coming from India. A corner of a box can get split. And I let that go. I tape it up neatly. And the people buying these understand that. But not recreating the whole box out of packing tape, you know? So um, anyway, Ramon is asking about how much damage do people deal with on average. It, for me, it depends on the company. This one, something is damaged in every shipment. It's just because the boxes that it comes in are cheap. They're not very good at playing Tetris with the stuff to fit it in the box, and they use cheap shipping boxes, you know, the, the flimsier ones that, that um, don't protect the stuff inside. I have other suppliers that it is like I get a shipment every week and probably once every six months something will be damaged. And interestingly enough, they are far easier to deal with with damage because they probably don't get very much of it, so it's not a big hassle for them. But if the other company who's constantly dealing with it, um, it probably there's one person there. It's like, oh, God, not more stuff. And I don't know, Ron brought this point up, that maybe they have made a conscious decision to not buy better boxes and to not spend a lot of time packing, and they are willing to accept the returns and losses for damaging shipment instead of buying more expensive boxes and buying better dunnage and paying people more or having them spend more time putting a box together. And I hadn't thought of it that way, but it could be that that was a business decision on their part to actually um, say, okay, we'll just deal with the, the, the stuff on the end. But it's not the way I would I would um, uh, done it. But uh, anyway, Jordan's saying I have one that had one out of dozens of boxes damaged and shoe suppliers that made Franken boxes. I don't know if you all know Franken boxes where you like take two boxes and put it together to make one box to ship something. Um, yeah, I've had those too. I've had, especially the small mom and pop suppliers, they will ship in crazy stuff. I mean, and then, then you get the ones that are so professional and nice. So that's another thing I would be looking at about looking for or running from a supplier. Also, I would look for what lead times they have on their products. Um, will they ship next day? Will they ship next week? Or does it take four to six weeks um, to get your products? And none of those are right or wrong. Well, they really are. I think they should ship next day. But um, 
but it's just something you need to know. So you need to know that company A, if I order today, they'll ship it tomorrow and I can have it in four days. Whereas company B, if I order today, they'll ship it in four to six weeks and I'll have it in six to seven weeks or whatever. So it's just something something to be aware of when you are looking for the suppliers. Um, another thing is, is um, do they sell retail themselves? I don't like suppliers who do that. Um, the one, the DVD company, I'm willing to um, let that go because they don't FBA. If they FBA'd their products, I would say, no, then, then that's a done deal. Um, I can't compete. So, um, so that's another thing. Elizabeth made a great point. If the supplier can supply good descriptions, yes, because then if, you, when, if you're having to make the listing page, you have a lot of information to go on to build that listing page. Another thing I ask is, can they supply the images for the products? On a, yeah, and that beat me to it. Yeah, um, images, because that will save you tons of time. Um, some will, some won't. Some of the images aren't worth having because they don't understand the requirements. Um, I have one supplier who doesn't automatically supply them, but all I have to do is ask. And if the, the person who I deal with at the company, she happens to also be the one who takes the images. And if she doesn't have them, she has the little setup in the corner of her office. I'm assuming. I've never been there. But it seems she'll get them done within the next day or two. And they're on a plain white background because she understands that. So, um, so that's a big plus. Ron's had to spend this last weekend taking images of stuff that the supplier won't provide them or they're too small or they're just crummy images. Um, and um, it, that would save you a lot of time. So that's another one to ask for. Um, the other thing to, to check when you're looking at a prospective supplier, Beth, is um, their shipping costs. Um, not every supplier knows the best way to ship products to you, nor do they always give you the best prices on shipping. So you need to know where it's shipping from, you know, what and what rates do they use for shipping? I had a supplier who lives in Idaho, the closest state to me, Idaho, and the town is only like 250 miles away. So by East Coast terms, that's an eternity. By Wyoming terms, that's right next door. Um, and she would insist on sending her shipments out FedEx next day, even though I told her not to. Because when you're that close, it makes no difference. You get them in a day or two. Even. I said, put them in a flat rate priority box and send this product out. She was a one, a one uh, business or one product business where she had invented a knitting thing and it was really, really popular. And um, you know, so she didn't know much about the whole how businesses need to get her product, and she wouldn't do it. And so, you know, yeah, I sold, you know, a couple of weeks of her product and made 20 bucks each on it. But it wasn't worth the, the hassle of fighting the shipping charges and, you know, her adding $4 to the cost of each 8-ounce item because of the way she shipped it. So look for some knowledge. Um, uh, look for some knowledge about shipping in the supplier. And Rona, Ramona, bye. Uh, we'll see you back hopefully in two weeks, and see you in the group. I'm glad you could join us at least for a little bit. So see how knowledgeable they are about shipping. Another thing I would look for, Beth, and this is, this is assuming 
um, that the product's okay, because I'm not going to go into the pricing the products and all that kind of stuff, is would they be willing to offer you terms? Um, 210 net 30, um, that's a good one, because then you can have 30 days basically to sell the product before you have to pay them for it. Even better would be like a net 30 terms that you can pay with a credit card, because that gives you another 20 days or whatever, depending on the cutoff date of your credit card. That's a win-win especially if your credit card gives you like an early pay discount like in your Amex fund card does or rewards points or whatever. So that's another thing to look at is payment terms and all that kind of stuff. So does that help you with some things to look for and some things to run from, Steph? She answers. Okay, great. Um, so another question from, oh, rap, I should have gotten to Ramona's first. Um, I, she posted it as a joke, but it's a really, really good uh, question. And she asked, is there an efficient way to research wholesale companies for, quote, small, light, and expensive? And she posted it as a joke um, on after I posted about that box of knitting needles, the $8,000 in knitting needles. Um, I, there's not a way to specifically go, and I'm going to Google small, light, expensive products from wholesalers. Unfortunately, there's not that easy, easy way to do it. But um, the first way to start is think about a niche or a kind of product that you know is small and light. At least you know it's small and light. And I think, you know, the vast majority of people have some things in their mind that they or in their house that they use that you know is small and light and may cost twenty or thirty bucks. I mean, the knitting needle one is an aberration. The odds of me finding you know eight thousand dollars in basically something a little bigger than a shoebox isn't going to happen all the time. So even small light in twenty dollars is better than a small heavy in twenty dollars or big light in twenty dollars. Um, I kind of like the light part for me, um, but others like the small. So, you know, it kind of depends on where you're looking. But, but you need to think of a group of products, you know, and this is where standing in the shower or just vegetating on the sofa, thinking about what do I know that's out there that's small and light and that could be expensive. You know, you've heard it could be. Another thing that comes to mind for me is I don't sell very many um, of them, but it's like, the fancy artist paintbrushes, right, because they're fairly small. We know they're light. And I know some of them, people pay $100 for a paintbrush, you know, made of some special animal hair, boar's hair, and that kind of stuff. So it's just, I think this case to find small, light, and expensive is to think of the small, light first and get a group of products, you know, make a list in Evernote of things that are possibilities. Like books aren't going to be in, in light. That's for sure. They could be small and they can be expensive, but they're not going to be what I would consider light. Um, where you might think, okay, DVDs are small, light, and expensive. That's one that to me would fit in. Um, so, in, in no matter what niche you sell in, I'm sure there are products that would be small, light, and expensive. It's just a matter of brainstorming general types of products first and then narrowing it down from the generalities to more specifics, and then finding suppliers for those specifics using the methods we talked about earlier. So, so that's uh, Ramona Small Light and Expensive. 
Um, Beth has one about what proportion of your time do you spend on major business activities now versus five years ago? That's a really good question. Um, yeah, 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 shampoo and canned goods. Yeah, exactly. Cause they're, and they're awkward because they're not like in a box. You know, they're round and you have to find a way to bundle them together and all that. So um, there's exceptions to it, but yeah. Um, I, I sell a lot of heavy things that are small and expensive, meaning like that thing that fits in the 5 by 7 box that weighs like 8 pounds but it sells for several hundred dollars. So the weight is less of an issue, and because it's small, I can get a lot of them in a box. And the, to back up, the light thing can also, um, interestingly enough, I don't want to say hurt you, but it, it makes a difference in your how you decide to, to send your stuff to Amazon. Because um, I use mostly 16 by 16 by 16 cube boxes. And with the new dimensional shipping from UPS, that box gets charged as if it weighs $25, 25 pounds, whether it weighs 2 pounds or 24 pounds. It'll be charged at 25 pounds. That's the, that's the thing. So I try to mix stuff in that box to make sure it's not all super light stuff, that it, at least I get my money's worth for the 25 pounds I'm being charged for. So something else to think about. Um, so... Um, back to best proportion of time you spend on major business activities. Um, what, Beth, what do you consider a major business activity? Um, making listings, sourcing products, book work, um, shipping stuff. Um, let me know what you think there. Um, and I'll tell you, I actually spend the least amount of time processing and shipping stuff. That is my... Um, Basically, I've gotten faster at it. I, I ship often instead of waiting to build up shipments. My average shipment to a warehouse is only one box. Um, but because of that, that box it could be a $2,000 box or whatever. It's, or, you know, they're not all that way. But even if it's a $500 box, getting that one box out, you know, frees up space because I don't have a lot of space to keep you know, getting 25 boxes in an order. Um, and I just don't like having the stuff sitting here. I'd rather it be on its way to Amazon. So even if I put together four boxes in a shipment, I'm still not going to hit 100 pounds, and I'm not going to get much of a break in shipping, you know, a buck or two. So that's not a big deal. So that I've become much more efficient at, just getting products out the door. I probably spend, unfortunately, equal amounts of time dealing with, junk from Amazon, meaning fixing listings, uploading images that got lost, um, writing new images, writing new image, writing new listings, that kind of housekeeping work probably takes, this, I spend as much time doing that as I do researching new products. Um, it's just a lot of little niggly stuff that you have to do. You know, you, you have to make sure you don't, nothing's gotten suppressed. You have to make sure people aren't on listings that you have made such so they can become exclusive. That's an issue Angie's having now, where um, they're selling on her listing and they can't be because she has copyrighted information in that listing. That kind of niggly junk 
takes as much time as anything. But a lot of it I don't want anybody else to do. I don't want anybody trying to solve customer problems for me. Um, I don't want anybody to do, quote, their best fixing a listing because I know the products and I know what it should be like. So that's a huge one. Um, dealing with feedback. I've had a run of negative feedback this week, three of them, which to me is huge, that were all Amazon related. They had to do with um, somebody got something broken in the box. She says the box made that dreaded rattling sound. And another one, it arrived late, so I got negative. And the third one was price. Um, and they all got removed because they certainly qualified. I didn't ship them broken stuff and all that, but it takes time. None of them got that nice little automatic, you know, when you submit feedback removal where it automatically gets removed. Um, these were the ones where they had to review it, and that makes me my stomach kind of just in knots thinking, oh, God, they're not going to remove it, you know. So that kind of stuff takes a lot of time. So I spend the, I want to say, if I can break it down, probably a quarter of my time dealing with the Amazon listings and inventory issues and all that kind of stuff, a quarter um, researching products or reordering stuff I have is really fast. That's probably like 10% of my time. Um, another quarter of my time is probably packing. Um, and then the other is just assorted little things like, you know, checking bank statements. I do have a bookkeeper, but I do look at my bank statements regularly. Um, you know, I pay my sales tax myself, so there's a little time involved in sending that off. And then I have to admit I waste a lot of time on the computer too. Um, I spend a fair amount of time doing Pinterest to try to promote products and all and that kind of stuff. And um, that probably is about 100% of what I do in the business. So you'll find that as you do this more, you'll be able to spot good products faster. You'll be able to say, nah, that's not going to work faster. And um, the physical part of packing, there's a point where it can't get any faster, but it will get faster. And I wish Deborah was here because she kept telling me I needed to get a dymo printer. I needed to get a dymo printer. And I stuck with my laser printer with the sheets of labels for a long time. I have to thank Deborah because the dymo did speed up my processing by probably at least 10%, maybe more. And it also made it more accurate because I didn't have to guess on which label went on which size knitting needle because, you know, they truncate a lot of it. You can't. So this way, the label spits out when I process it and there's no question of the right thing going on the right item. So that's one that if you don't have a Dymo, I'd save up for it. I got it at a Staples sale when it, they had some flash sale and I got it at staples.com for, you know, half price. So it was well worth it. Um, for a long time, I used um, list label ship, and I listed right through Seller Central. I did that up until the first of this year. Um, just listed right through Seller Central, and list label ship, $5 a month, um, spit out the individual labels for me. Um, the first of the year, I switched to Inventory Lab. I like lots of stuff about it. There are some things I don't like. I'm still at it, and it's May, so that's five months later. But if one particular thing doesn't get fixed soon, I don't think um, I don't um, 
I don't think I'll stick with it. And that's the fact that I can't see in-gown inventory on my inventory report. So say I ordered a bunch of high, high knitting needles and I sent them in to Amazon and then I'm going to reorder because I've sold a bunch of stuff in the meantime. The inventory lab page, the main inventory lab page does not show me what's inbound. And if it was there, it would make reordering way faster. So, um, so uh, Beth asking, what does your processing flow look like now with inbound traps at Medimo? Um, I just, when I get a box from the supplier, I open it up, and um, about half of my stuff has barcodes and half doesn't. Maybe more than half doesn't. Just it's the nature of the companies I deal with it. So. Um, the barcode stuff is easy because I have a barcode scanner and I'll just scan it, um, get the labels printed out, and I cheat death. This, and I'm talking about the old private workflow, not with the new live workflow. I cheat death and I put it in the box where it tells me because I submit my batches like every hour or two so things don't change. Um, I haven't used the new live workflow or the, yeah, the live workflow yet because I've got shipments in process, but I'll try that when it does. So I cheat yes, and I put it in the box where the inventory lab says it's supposed to go, and I haven't had any issues in months because I submit those batches on, on a really regular basis. I don't wait for the whole day to go before I submit them. I'll do it when, you know, in an hour when I need to get up and take a break and go to the restroom or whatever. Um, so um, that's, that's how I do it. Um, open, scan, put in box. The stuff without barcodes, I go to my inventory page in Inventory Lab and get the ASIN of the item from my inventory page and then plug that into the list page and it'll come up that way. Um, so hope that helps about how I, I use it. Um, it's, I do like a lot of stuff about it. The, I think my favorite thing is the ROI calculator at the bottom of your listing so you can see where you are. And I, it's caused me to stop selling a few things because I didn't realize how low my ROI was on a few products. And I was like, well, that's not worth it, so we'll quit that one, you know. Um, so I do like that part of it. So, um, Wendy, the Dymo, uh, if you're listing right through Seller Central, in most cases, you will need an add-on like list label ship, which is $5 a month or $45 a year, something like that. And that will allow you to, as you list through Seller Central, to just click on a little icon it puts on your web browser at, at a particular point in the listing process as you go through, and it will spit out the labels. Then you put them on your... Um, items because you have them at hand and then you put I put them in the boxes that relate to the fulfillment center that they go to. So it means you don't have to hunt and peck to put labels on products after you've handled the product to list it or to replenish the inventory and you've labeled it and you've then put it in the box where it's supposed to go. And when I say box, I don't like pack for shipment box. I have bankers boxes labeled with the fulfillment centers and they just go in there. And then when I'm done and ready to send it, I take the banker's box or banker's boxes and then put them in the shipping box. So, so yeah, the Dymo is the big time saver. So that's kind of, if that's if you don't have one, that would be, I think, um, your next purchase to save you time because, you know, your, your time is limited in processing 
And even if you decide to have a prep service do a lot of it, you'll still need one to process those things that don't make don't make sense. Um, yeah. Yeah, so Wendy, it's list table ship. Um, if you go to the resources page on the wholesale sourcing experts.com site, so it's wholesale sourcing experts.com forward slash resources. There's only like two pages on the website. There's a link to list label ship, and I believe it's a free month you get to try or a discount. I'm not exactly sure. So check it out there, and that'll get you right to them to sign up for it. The other thing list label ship does, which I, I love, and I've kept list label ship even though I now have inventory lab, is it will allow you to print the Amazon shipping labels on a zebra printer. So a zebra is a printer that prints four by six shipping labels, you know, in a giant roll. And you can get the giant roll of labels free from UPS. Um, they're four by six labels that fit in the Zebra 450 printer. And you can get a Zebra 450 printer two ways. You can get it from UPS and rent it, and it's $2 a week. And you do that just by contacting your UPS rep. So that's, so then you don't have to buy labels to ship with because you're using UPS supplied labels to ship UPS boxes. And they say UPS at the bottom so they know where they come from. The other um, thing you can do is talk nice to your rep. And you guys are all selling enough that you talk to your rep and tell them how many shipments you send in a week or, um, and how many to Amazon using their partner shipping because they'll say, well, you don't show you ship one thing a week. Why should we give you a printer? Well, no, you say I ship 30 boxes a week, but they're through Amazon's UPS partner shipping and they just don't show. A rep will know what that means, a, your district representative. Um, then ask him, since I, he or she, since I ship so much with UPS and I have so much shipped to me, I get, you know, 30 shipments a week for my suppliers coming to me, I think you need to give me a Zebra 450 printer. And that's what it is. It's a Zebra. It's not appropriate for me. Um, printer. I'm putting it in chat. And they'll give you one. Probably not to keep forever, but we've had ours for six months um, to use. No charge. So, you just, so you'll save two bucks a week that way, and you'll have the printer that can spit out your nice little UPS-supplied labels that you get for free um, via list label ship. It won't work through the Amazon, flow, uh, Amazon shipping thing where you go to print your labels like on the two-up sheets and stuff. Um, the only way you can do well, there's two ways. You can do it with list label ship for $5 a month. Or you can save PDFs and cut and paste the PDF of the shipping label to get it to print on a 4 by 6 sheet. It doesn't automatically do it from Amazon. Um, and I have written to them and asked them that it would be nice if they could set it up so it would since it's a common printer used by people who ship UPS. So, so ask your UPS rep. If you don't know who he is, call a UPS store in your area and they'll know who the district rep is for UPS and talk to them and see what they can offer you. And they may be able to offer you other things to help your shipping that you don't know about. So always good to communicate. Uh, with them. So let me get the next question up. Um, so, okay, Elizabeth is asking, touch base, how, how can we, maybe we can touch on how to get a product cleared for HazVet so that, can, that I can send it in for FDA. The thing you need to do 
to get a product cleared is get what is called an MSDS from the manufacturer of the product. That stands for Material Safety Data Sheet, abbreviated as MSDS. And all manufacturers will know what you mean. Many of them will have them available right on their website so you don't even have to ask them for it. You just say, um, you just can go there and download an MSDS for the product. Then you send that MSDS to Amazon in a help ticket um, along with the ASIN and the product and ask for hazmat clearance. Um, and they will, from the information that, that's in that MSDS sheet, they will either say yes or no. And um, they are, the MSDS people at Amazon, I've talked to them on the phone, they're very, um, very knowledgeable. And some stuff that I thought, oh, no way in heck this is going to be hazmat. How can this be hazmat? It's like one thing I sell is like a, um, it comes in a little can like shoe polish comes in and it's a colorant for like uh, gilding uh, picture frames and stuff. So it's a really thick, not even a paste, it, it's almost like it's solid. You know, you can't like just take some out with your finger. You really have to rub or use a little alcohol to thin it down or whatever. But it's really... It has that because it has a, it was an explosion point or what they called it, below a certain degree. And because of that, even though you wouldn't think it was, they wouldn't accept it um, into their normal warehouse system. He, the guy I talked to said, yeah, it's clearly hazmat and here's why. So just because you and I, you know, don't think it would be, some stuff does come up being it for other reasons. Combustion points, sorry, was the word, combustion point. Um, don't come up. They, they come up for other reasons of hazmat. So that being said, um, because I was talking to this guy, and I got a hold of him because I had been selling this product on Amazon FBA for about two years. All of a sudden, it went hazmat. And I talked to Seller Central, um, and they didn't know why. So they said, tough. We're going to destroy all your products that are in the warehouse. Too bad. You know, bye-bye. Um, and so I thought, well, this is ridiculous to not even tell me why and to know what's on. So I wrote, this was the very first Jeff at Amazon.com letter I wrote to Jeff Bezos. And you get to him at Jeff at Amazon.com. But I thought this was an important enough one to learn about hazmat and what happens. And that's how I got talking with this guy on Jeff's staff who was the hazmat guy. I'm sure there's like a minion on Jeff's staff, staff for every issue that can come up related to Amazon. And the letters, if you choose to write a letter to him, gets diverted to the proper minion who deals with it. And this guy, you know, explained to me what on that MSDS made it have that. Made sense. You know, okay, fine. Um, but he said at that time there was a pilot program that they were starting. They have two warehouses in the country that accept hazmat stuff. Um, Probably the vast majority of it is their own stuff. Um, but they are letting select sellers into the hazmat program. And they let me into it. So I can send hazmat things. Certainly, that doesn't mean everything. They have to be the ORMD level hazmat, so the base, the first level hazmat. I can send them into Amazon. So, I can, so they did transfer all of these things to the warehouse for me. I have like hundreds of them there, this, this colorant stuff. And I could send in another really good seller that qualified to, 
the downside is that um, no partner shipping. So you have to pay for shipping yourself to that to the warehouse. The one I send to is mostly in Indiana, is in Indiana where I send most of the hazmat stuff. Um, so you don't get the partner shipping discount. And um, even though it's prime, you'll see listings that'll say uh, eligible for prime but takes three to five days to ship or something. That's a clue that it's a hazmat item. Um, because they can only ship by ground. Hazmat can only go by ground. It can't go by air, so they can't do the two-day shipping. So if you're looking at products yourself to source and see that, that it says, you know, it's prime, so you think, okay, it's okay to send in, but it has that little, uh, takes three to four days to ship. That's a clue that it's going to be hazmat. Um, clearance time, they say they will do it within a week. They'll, you'll either get yes or no within a week, it's been faster for me. Usually it's two to three days. Somebody has to review that MSDS and go yes or no on it. Um, I've had them come back to me and ask for MSDSs on products that are in the warehouse um, and stuff that was ridiculous. And one of them was a set of knitting needles. They wanted the MSDS on knitting needles. So, you know, that one you have to say there is not one because it's not a product that has an MSDS sheet. You know, it's a... So um, I'd say allow a week at most. If you don't hear from them within that week, certainly follow up on them. See. The HAZMAT pilot program to allow yourself, allow, be allowed to send in HAZMAT stuff is not open right now. If I hear that it opens back up, you guys will be the very first to know, so you can be the first ones if you want to, to apply. Um, I, I only have two products that I send in. One is the line of the colorants, and another is another um, jewelry-related liquidy product that I send in. Because that partnership, you don't realize how good it is, so you've got to pay your own UPS rates. It's like, oh, my gosh, really? That should be like $6 to send in. No, it's $13? What's going on here? So, so I'm, I'm careful about that just because you have hazmat approval doesn't, you know, make the world open up completely. So, okay, I'm glad a week's okay. Usually it's faster, but, you know, but the clue is that MSDS. And that's all they'll want. They don't want to hear anything else from you about anything because that's the Bible. If it meets their requirements to go in their warehouse, which has special fire suppression things and, and all that kind of stuff, it's a different warehouse. If it, if it qualifies to meet that, they'll say yes because they want to sell as much as they can but be aware that you're going to have to pay the shipping into them. And the returns issues are different, too, because they can't, they accept returns, but it's a different way. Fortunately, I've not had any of these items returned, not from wood, um, so I haven't had to deal with it. But there is a different process for, for if you get the hazmat approval. So you guys will be the first to know if I hear anything, and then you can decide if you want to get involved with it or not. So next question, let me go down the list. Um, Angela asks, how do you research for good product choices when you don't have a specific niche? Um, boy, that's a tough one. Um, I, think, I, think you, I don't think you have to have a niche, but you have to have product knowledge about products. And whether that's just because from your own personal use of products or your spouse's use of products or what your kids like, or what the neighborhood kids like, or what your family likes. There has to be some basis of knowledge to select 
good products because I'm talking about long-term things, not something that, you know, the hot shampoo right now because it's been discontinued and then once everybody's over it, you have to find something else. I'm, I'm looking for the long-term kind of thing. You, you do have to educate yourself. And I don't say you have to be an expert in it, but you do have to spend the time to learn about it, learn what the trends are in it, um, learn what people like and don't like. Um, because if, if, if I went to go source toys, Okay, I would not have a clue. I would not have a clue what kids like now and what kids are already asking for for Christmas. I would not have an idea. And I think I would make some really poor choices unless I spent some time reading mom blogs, reading you know toy uh, retailer websites, doing my research. Um, because I'm looking for product lines that I can that I can get again and resell. So so I don't say you have to be an expert, but I do say, think you have to have some knowledge of the products you are outsourcing. And this is where wholesale can be very different, is very different than retail arbitrage. In retail arbitrage, you are looking for the hot product at the moment, basically by scanning it and see what its rank is, see what your ROI is, and it's either yes or no. Wholesale is different because you are looking for long-term sources for products that you can sell over and over, companies that are developing new products and all that. You're not looking for the instantaneous one-moment product that you can sell this week and be done with. You know, I want you to grow your businesses for the long term so they will keep going and keep going and keep going, not depend on whether you can go to 12 Walmarts this week and find enough of these things to sell. Um, and the other thing is by dealing with wholesalers versus retail arbitrage, um, you are not having to deal with um, issues that lots of people are running into about, you know, I, didn't, I don't have approval from that manufacturer to sell the product and they, I got reported to Amazon and boom, you know, my selling account got suspended, all those kind of things. By going to the wholesale source, you know you have, Full right to sell that product, um, and there won't be any questions about it. Um, I I hate to see people getting heavy into you know buying hundreds and hundreds of products with the the thought that that they don't know that they can actually sell that product. You know that that's scary. That would scare the daylights out of me. Because I'm even though I like to take some risks, that's not a kind of risk I want to take. I want to be you know there. Um, on the up and up and doing it that way. So, um, so I don't, um, Angela, I don't want to say that you have to be an expert and have a niche to sell in, but you have to have some product knowledge. So start with things you know, things you like, things your family knows, things your family likes, and that will give you at least a place to start with learning how to do research to find these wholesalers. So if you like to cook, start looking at kitchen stuff, um, because there's lots of small, light, and expensive kitchen stuff out there, that's for sure. Um, don't be looking to buy KitchenAid mixers because you know Amazon's got KitchenAid wrapped up, right? You know, those big names. That's not where you should go. Look for the smaller niche products, maybe an item that's used in a certain ethnic cooking, like the things to stuff cannoli or, you know, whatever. But this, this, the other kind of stuff, 
And then you'll know if the product's good or not because if you're a cooking fan, you'll know what's good and what's not, what's the waste, what's not kind of thing. So to get some knowledge somewhere, start and go. Um, I have to admit, Ron did not know a lot about the whole art and craft field. He knows photography inside and out. But he has learned about how the tools are used and how things he's looking at apply to the, the, the jewelry making field and all that. And he's done some of it by taking classes. And not by taking classes to learn how to do it himself, which, because even though that's really fun, but just to learn how tools are used and what people use them for and what other things might go along with those tools and all that kind of stuff. So it's a constant education process. So, um, Wendy asks, do you look for items not currently being sold on Amazon? Or if it is selling already, what do you look for? Um, ideally, it wouldn't be on Amazon, but you know that, that doesn't happen every day. That would be the ideal situation. But I look for products that don't have a lot of sellers. That's the first thing. Um, because I just, a lot of competition is a lot of competition. And, you know, in my niche, it's not a, a niche as huge as toys. You know, where toys can support 20 or 30 or 40 sellers on a product, especially at the holiday time. Um, arts and crafts things are so much more specialized they can't afford 20 or 30 sellers. So I'm kind of, if there's two or three sellers, that's, that's enough for me. And I pretty much know all the others now. I know who they are, what they sell, where they get the products, all of that. I know who's a pain in the butt and will mess up your listing, who will do just fine. And um, that comes from just doing it for a long time. So ideally, nobody's on Amazon. Um, less ideal but okay is if other sellers are selling it. Um, I have some products that Amazon is selling, but the timeline is such that I went to a trade show in January. The, a supplier I've had for years and years comes out with a new line of little jewelry-making gadgets every January. And they're not real expensive, but they're nice. You know, people buy them. And they're really cyclical. You know, they'll be done by Christmas when the new little gadgets come out because some new little fat will be in place. So, so I buy them at the trade show, and I get them in quickly, and I get them to Amazon, and I sell them fairly fast because they're in all the magazines and all that because they're the hot thing. And then I'll reorder one and they'll sell probably not so fast because other people are now getting in there. And most of the time, I never reorder the third time because Amazon then gets on after the third time. They, they don't seem to move as fast, be able to move as fast and as nimbly to get products on the site as fast as I can, but they will come after this particular supplier. I know that they're going to be there. So I've sold out of the second order I made from the company, and I'm done with them now, and I'll just wait till their next batch of products. So, um, in, in this case, Angie, these products are, you know, they're inexpensive enough that they're a real impulse buy for crafters, so I kind of know they're going to be okay. You know, they're, they're not, they're not going to go forever. They're not going to be a long-term product. They're going to be short-term, savage thing, and then, you know, we'll move on. Um, other times, um, yeah, I do go with my gut, and I think you know that's where you have to develop some knowledge in your field. I mean, the guy who owns your local grocery store, he has to have knowledge of what sells in your town and what doesn't. You know, um, is your town got a huge Greek ethnic population? 
If it does, he better have some Greek food on his shelves or he's going to be missing out a lot of business. Having a Greek food thing in Jackson, Wyoming, waste of shelf space because there's very, very um, few people of Greek origin here and it's not a big deal. You know, they don't have a Greek festival and Greek cooking and all that kind of stuff. So that's where you have to have some knowledge of the, the general things the product you're selling. No matter, Amazon is no different in that than um, any, if you were a brick and mortar store owner. You'd have to know, if you had a, a um, baby clothing store, you'd have to know what the, the fads are now and what moms are looking for in clothes for babies and, you know, what are the latest little shoes and do shoes with lights and squeakers sell now or are those over, all that kind of stuff. So you have to have that knowledge. So that when I say gut, that's what I mean. It's, it's a combination of using the stuff in your head that you've learned about the products and what you know and what does, does if you look at this product, are you going, hmm, I'm not sure. Are you going, wow, oh, this is cool. I think this will really sell. That's the, the final point. You know, the gut becomes the last thing because you have to run the numbers and do all that kind of stuff. And then if you're on the fence and wondering, I'm not so sure about this, I would say no then. Because something is telling you somewhere based on what you know that it may not be right. And in most cases, your gut will win. You know, it's smarter than your brain. Um, so listen to it. But I don't want you to think that you just have to look at something and know instantly whether it's okay or not. That doesn't really happen to the vast majority of people. Um, you hear Lori Grenier on Shark Tank. She says she knows instantly if it's a hero or a zero. Um, she probably does for her QVC audience and her, her Bed Bath & Beyond audience. Um, but, you know, don't expect, not everybody is worried when you have that kind of thing. Um, Angie, it happens. She, Angie said, I see something, think it's wonderful, and it falls flat. Now, you need to distinguish, because I'm really, I'm really bad at this one. You have to distinguish, do you think it's wonderful for yourself? because you really like it as a person and you would use it and you just think it's adorable and pretty? Or do you think it's wonderful because you think other people will? Because personal taste, while plays a part in what we buy, should not always be a factor in what we buy. Because I sell some stuff I don't like. But other people do, and that's perfectly fine because I am not the goddess of taste in the world. So you have to think, am I thinking it's wonderful because I want to put it in my house or I want to knit with it or my kid looks so cute in it? Is it that why you think it's wonderful or do you think it's wonderful because you think people will buy it? So while, while your personal opinion should be in there, you also have to look at it from outside the box, like look back at products like um, the singing fish that went on the wall, um, was that the Billy Bass or some Big Mouth Bass or something like that. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't have that in my house and I wouldn't like, I don't, didn't like it. I don't think they make it anymore. Um, um, just because I don't doesn't mean those millions and millions and millions of other people didn't like it and didn't buy it. So, so if I was a buyer for, say, you know, Walmart or Walgreens or CVS and I said, oh, I hate that Billy Bass thing. It's just so dang ugly. 
they'd have lost millions of dollars because people came in wanting to buy it. So personal taste, yes to a point, but don't let it rule your um, your whole business. So if you if you get to that point, Angie, where you think it's wonderful, um, but you're not sure, ask other people. You know, get some other opinions, and not necessarily from other online sellers, but just from other people. You know, you can print a copy of the page. What do you guys think of this? And don't tell them what it costs, and then ask them what they would pay for it. And say, oh, that's so cool. I love it. That's just great. What would you pay for it? And they say $9.99, and you want to charge $24.99 for it. Mm. Might have a little problem there, too. So um, friends can be researched if asked, um, asked in a way that doesn't lead them to an answer. You know, so don't tell them what it costs first. Ask first if they like it or not. And then if they like it and love it, ask them what they would pay for it. And then after they've said that, you can say, well, it's going to sell for $24.99. They go, uh, I don't think so. Then then you really got to think twice about it, you know. So, um, so does that help, Angie? I think so because Angie gets stuff like that. So we've got one question from Wendy. If an item is new, how do you sell it so fast if it is an unknown quantity? That's because I know. Let's go back to that product line of the hot jewelry making thing that they release every January and then it's dead after you know a few months because they advertise it a lot. That's one thing. And you can ask your manufacturers: Do you advertise this product? Do you? Um, you know, are you in like craft magazines or if it's a food product, do you advertise in, in cooking magazines or if it's a cooking tool do you have, or cooking magazines, whatever. Ask them what kind of advertising they do. Do you have a, a website and a blog where you, you talk about it, you know, kind of stuff. And if you know that they're doing that, um, they're advertising and all that, and you know the line, you know the history that it's a hot product, that their products do that. They're hot and then they'll die. Um, you can be pretty well assured that it will move that first time around and not um, and not sit around. It's no guarantee it will keep going, but at least you can do that. The advertising, surprisingly enough, in um, print magazines, in fields that have still have print magazines, crafting is one where they have um, uh, lots of print magazines still because people like to keep the instructions and everything. Um, if they advertise in those, that's a big help for you. Um, but the other downside is if they advertise in those, they probably have a lot of retailers selling their products, so there may be competition. So you have to weigh that. In this case, I know I'm fast, and I got the product there first. I made the listings for the product. So I know I was the first one there. Um, and then just realize that it's going to be a short-term ride and then move on to the next thing. So um, let me... Um, new product info, um, I'm not sure what you mean by getting new product info. You mean like like from wholesalers that you're dealing with, that's the best thing because they will send out, if you have an account with XYZ company and they come out with a new product, they'll send you the information first. I just want, just got one today from one of my wholesalers, it's called Tool Time, and they released a new tool. So they send it to their retailers first so you can order it first. So that's that's the best way. On existing accounts, they'll send you that information. Um, on new accounts, it's just, I would say, sign up and get on a mailing list to get that kind of stuff. Look at the trade show list, and it goes all back to that. You know, it's, it's just having to do the research. So um, 
unfortunately, we've gone over time, but I'm going to go. I'm going to go a little past if you guys stick with me. It's it's uh, 13 after. Let's go to half past the hour. That'll give us an hour and a half because I can get a couple more questions in. If you'll stick with me. If y'all leave, I'll just have to shut it down because I don't like talking to myself. Um, Beth asked about rank. She keeps seeing mentions of some zero rank products actually having sales. Do you see this? If so, how does this impact your product and listing research? Um, the, the theory is that if a product has zero rank, it's never sold before. That, I don't say, that would be logically what you would think, right? That if it's never sold, it would be zero. And once it's sold, it would have some sort of number even if it was 10 million. Because once it's sold, wouldn't it be in this huge long list of things that it's sold? But unfortunately, sales rank can be really, really deceptive. Um, if I haven't had a product where one person went in, it was a new product, so it had zero rank. It wasn't an expensive thing, but it was something that gets used up so people, you know, buy more than one a lot of times, you know, or if they're buying for a classroom, they'll buy a lot. So I bought 10 of this new product. I made the listing. She bought it with an A, bought 10. The rank went down to some ridiculous, I mean, just absolutely ridiculous, ridiculous number that you wouldn't think. It was like, like 80 in Arkansas. 80 is crazy in Arkansas, right? But that was a snapshot in time. At that moment, it was the 80th best-selling item in Arkansas. I went back and looked an hour later, and it had crept up twice. And then another hour later, it was at 1,000. And then another hour later, it was like at 2,000. You know, it, it kept moving. And um, if someone had scanned that item in the store and looked at us, oh, my God, this is a double-digit rank, this item's awesome, um, and bought a, you know, hundreds of them, they might have been in for a rude awakening because nobody bought it for another week, you know. Um, it's that snapshot of time that makes it really difficult to know by just looking at the rank. So that's the first thing. The second thing is um, the snapshot in time. Jordan, thank you. There are categories that don't have ranks. So that could be something that people are seeing and saying, well, it doesn't have a rank, but it's selling. What's going on? That's another good point. The third one is just sometimes Amazon hiccups. And I've had stuff that have been selling regularly, you know, a couple of weeks for a long time, all of a sudden have no rank. So it's, um, it's a crazy thing. It is not my primary um, criteria in determining whether I'll buy a product for two reasons. One, a lot of the products aren't on Amazon already, so it doesn't have a rank. Two, I know based on that happening with that person buying 10 of something that it is only a snapshot in time and it could change. Um, using camel, 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 you can find more research going back if you and you can see trends with the product, um, um, et cetera. Um, so, Jordan, the product you put in the chat room, um, you bought 16, 16 and sold them all, and someone bought five yesterday. Isn't that funny? Yeah, that's, that's crazy how things go like that. Um, so the zero rank thing, 
rank can be a clue, but it shouldn't be your only clue. And that, that I think, affects retail arbitrage people tend to rely on rank a lot more than wholesalers do, people who source purely wholesale, because we have other factors that, you know, we're not looking for that instantaneous hot product, you know, that to get out in the door, out the door, before the price tanks, because they're under a huge time pressure to get that product in before everybody finds the sale product and the price goes down, down, down to nothing. So, um, so you just be aware, look at camel, camel, camel if you want. Um, use it as one of your factors, but not all of your factors or your only factor. Don't let rank and, and be the only thing you look at in doing a product. Um, I've passed on some stuff just because the, the ROI was meh, okay, but the listing was a mess, and I just didn't want to deal with it. You know, I could see that this was going to be a mess because I'm sure a lot of you have been in that back and forth where you get a listing fixed and it gets screwed up again. And a listing, you fix it again and it gets screwed up again because some moron somewhere is using a flat file upload to um, change the listing and they make a mess of it again. And I know who my competitors are who do that. And if they've messed it up, it just annoys me no end. So sometimes, unless the ROA is really, really good, I don't want to get in that back and forth of reporting listings, fixing listings, reporting listings. So that's another thing I look at, you know. And it just becomes this whole smorgasbord of information you have in front of you. When you're looking at a product, do I want to buy it or not? You have, you know, your gut feeling, you have your research into prices of similar products, you have feedback from family, friends, husbands, whatever, you have um, details about the listing, you have all these pieces of this giant puzzle that you have to put together in your, the way that makes sense for you to get to a yes or no answer, because that's what it comes down to, yes or no. Um, do I buy it or not? Um, so I, I think that that is enough information to get you going on using rank to, to help be part of that puzzle. I don't want it to be your whole puzzle. So, and I apologize if you hear my dog whining here. He's sitting here looking at me whining because I'm ignoring him, so I apologize for that. Um, let me find another question. Um, Angie asked, most productive way to keep track of inventory. Ooh, Angie. Um, I, I think the most productive way is to have it at Amazon because then you can keep track of it through Seller Central or if you use something like Inventory Lab or something. Seriously, that's how I, I find I don't want inventory in my house. I am not a person to buy things and hold it for two years, hoping you know, it will become a rare game and the price will go up. And all. No, That's not my thing. My thing is to get the stuff in and get it to Amazon. Um, I have one uh, storage cabinet of stuff for eBay that, that I keep in there, and I use a program or a website called Vindio to keep track of my eBay. Um, oh, I'm sorry. How to keep track of when to repurchase or not. Um, boy, I don't have a super automated uh, slam bam, give me a list of things to repurchase. Um, I go through my inventory every day, meaning um, 
a mix of doing an inventory lab, and I do have to do some of it. It works easier for me to do some of it seller central because I can see what's inbound. Whereas in inventory lab, you have to go to another window and do all this stuff, and I can't match this up as easy. So um, I I kind of look. Obviously, if I've been a bad girl and let everything things run to zero, I sort by quantity available, and I've read them, let them run to zero. Well, that was a stupid thing, and I reorder those immediately. And sometimes I will reorder those if I don't have time to sit down and do further research just to get them coming in. And then I'll sit down later in the day or the next day and research the things that I might have one or two of. Um, I do like the Amazon reports that they give you about days of cover for a product. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that report. Let me anybody know if you're familiar with it. And while you're typing, I'm going to go to my browser and get the actual name of the report. Um, since I don't know it offhand. So Angie knows that report. Good. Give me a second to find it. Angie, do you know the name of it offhand? I can't think of it. What is it called now? Um, but anyway, it's short and sorry. I will post it in the um, in the chat room or in the Facebook groups because I can't think of the name. Um, but uh, anyway, I will post it in the Facebook group. It shows you what's called days of cover. So it'll say you sold three of these in the last week. You have three in stock. We predict that your inventory will run out in seven days. Okay, and they'll they'll do that for everything. You can also get them by email is what I like getting them by email. And it predicts how long you'll run out. So then you need to do the math and figure out when do I need to order more of these to not run out, to get them into the warehouse um, before they run out. Yeah, Elizabeth gets them by email too. I, I think the email ones are the easiest ones for me to deal with because I can do it right there and then move on. Um, so you know... Um, so you know that um, you need to reorder. Now, replenishment alerts can be set in Seller Central that if you, you set it in the Manage Inventory page, that when I get to X number of these, say you want to know when you have three left, it will send you an alert um, to say, okay, you're down to three. And then it's up to you to decide, are they moving fast enough? Do I want to reorder or whatever? So. So I, do, I haven't found a magic bullet yet. Um, uh, hold on. Somebody said, uh, da, 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 da. yeah, Beth says inventory valuation report in inventory lab, inbound to current quantity. Um, yeah, I just want that inbound on the main inventory page. That's just, you know, that's just what, how I want it. But you can set it up a, di a different way. Um, um, and yes, Angie, that's exactly exactly what I do. I then, if I get replenishment alerts on products, I'll go through and um, in inventory lab you can sort by supplier and find other things that might be close to running out from that supplier. Um, if um, if I get alerts that show that perhaps you know this product is picking up steam because there was an article in a magazine about this technique and it's selling more. And I know the article's coming out. I may want to order more then. You know, kind of. So it's, 
unfortunately, I haven't found that magic bullet one way to do it, you know. Um, it's just, it's, again, putting together a few pieces of um, the puzzle. You know, is, it, is the velocity picked up for some reason? So it's going way faster than it normally does. Um, set replenishment alerts um, like Beth does. Um, um, yeah, oh, Beth, is that true you can set it for weeks of cover? I didn't know that. I thought it was only numbers. Let me know. Um, and oh, so okay, so there you go. That is a thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing that. So Beth says the replenishment alerts can be set for weeks of cover. So if you know it takes a week to get product from supplier XYZ and it takes a week to get it from you to Amazon, you would want to set it when you have two weeks of cover left. That makes sense. So you have your it, that it's that old just-in-time inventory. You get new stuff in just before you run out of the old stuff, just before you need it. So, okay, that's brilliant. Okay, I learned something new today that I'm going to pass on in the Facebook group too for people who weren't here. Thank you, Beth. So, so yeah, so you can you can figure. I've got one supplier. It takes three weeks for stuff to come in, so I would have to set basically. It takes a week to get anywhere from here to Amazon. Um, so I would need four weeks of cover to reorder from them. That's a really, really useful thing. So I think that might solve the problem. Does that help, Angie, on on the the whole reorder stuff? Because it's it's an art, you know. You don't want too much money tied up in stuff that's not moving, but you also don't want to run out of stuff because running out's the worst. If I go to a page of mine that says unavailable, that makes me like, oh man, you know, why did I do that? So um, so that's it. Does that answer, Angie? Let me know. And then I think we're going to have to wrap it up because we're getting close to the bottom of the hour. Um, does anybody have any? <laughs> um, so just OHD. The cat must have been on the keyboard. Um, yeah, Elizabeth, I hate running out of stock, so it kind of makes me, you know, like I, like I didn't do my job well enough to keep track of it. So, um but if anybody has any other questions, post them in the chat room right now, and we'll get to them. Um, thank you guys for bearing with me for the hour and a half. This was fun. I like the question and answer stuff. I think it's it's really interesting because everybody has different issues in their business, you know, um, and everybody, you know, you want to hear different ways of viewing it, you know. And I, I just I love Beth for telling me about the weeks cover. I always thought it was number. So anyway. Um, so I don't have any new questions coming in. Um, next week, or not next week, two weeks from today, um, Deborah's going to be back. Um, and I haven't told Deborah what she's talking about yet, but she's going to be back for a, um, a podcast to talk about some new and exciting topics. Um, still sticking with wholesale. Uh, we're not doing the same thing here, but Beth is always up Beth. Um, so we got Beth on the mind. Deborah's always fun. Um, to, to get going and for she spreads a lot of information. Um, she has done tons of research and things that I haven't done and that's why I want her to come back to share some of that research that she's done. So so thank you all for joining us. Um, we hope you have a great week and sell lots of stuff. And happy sourcing. Bye bye.